You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Upstart.com. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 404, In the Pale Moonlight. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we look right into the morals of an episode of Star Trek and ask ourselves, would we have done the same thing? Would you? And can you live with yourself in the morning? This week, in the pale moonlight, the one where, well, it's the one that is totally off the record. And look, we just might delete this whole podcast when we're done. While the show may be off the record, your comments to us are saved and treasured for all time. And now I'd like to tell you what is on the record, and that is how you can contact us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, with a perfect, isolinear, optolithic rod full of trivia. Well, maybe it's fake. I'm not sure. But the trivia is real. And here's John Champion with it. All right, today's story in the pale moonlight is by Peter Allen Fields, and it's great to see Peter's name in the credits again. He had started his Trek career as a producer on the fifth season of TNG and then made his way over to DS9, where he was a writer and producer. I've mentioned before how he wrote several Man from Uncle episodes, and he's dropped a few of those Easter eggs into Star Trek. He even created the Garrick character, a spy who works in a tailor shop. This story was a commission. It was the producers, like Ira Stephen Bear and others, looking to make a broad-range political story about a scandal that would have serious consequences if found out. Peter worked on a number of drafts, including one about Jake discovering something about the Shakar government on Bajor, or even discovering something about his father. Fast forward a little bit to the teleplay by Michael Taylor, but again, that doesn't really tell you the whole story. Ronald D. Moore, uncredited, actually wrote the final draft, and that's the way that those things go a lot of the time, just based on you know credits and union rules of who gets their name on that splash screen at the top of the show. Now, uh, Ron was the one who had stepped away from working Jake into the story, since he felt like the bond with his father was so strong, it wouldn't make sense to drive a scandal between them here. It was directed by Victor Lovell, and the last time we saw Victor's directing work was in Who Mourns for Mourn, and then we'll see him for one more DS9 episode before catching him on Voyager. A, the USS Cairo, not the first time for this ship, but uh, 
certainly sounds like the last time. Uh, let's see, way back in TNG, we met the Cairo and it was under command of Edward Jellicoe. And uh, funny, when I first heard the title of this episode, I thought of that line from Tim Burton's 1989 Batman film, Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? And, and yes, that is indeed where this title comes from. Spoken by Jack Napier, later to be the Joker. And let's talk about our guest stars. Well, in their hollow versions, we have Jeffrey Combs as Wayun and Casey Biggs as Damar. As the alien Grayson Tolar, we have Howard Shangra, and he has only a handful of credits since the mid-80s, but some interesting ones in there, no doubt. In addition to the occasional TV guest role, he was in the infamous 1994 version of The Fantastic Four. This is his only Trek appearance. And we meet the Romulan Senator Vrenak, played by Stephen McCaddy. Now, his on-screen career starts back in 1970, where a few film roles led to a good number of TV guests and recurring spots. Adam-12, Lou Grant, you fast-forward a bit to shows like Beauty and the Beast and Seinfeld, where he played Dr. Reston on four episodes. He turned up on Quantum Leap, which is a nice connection to his next Trek appearance on Enterprise. More recently, you might have caught him on Orphan Black and... No surprise, he does a lot of voice acting work, too. Here's another Trek sci-fi connection. He was once married to Meg Foster from They Live and the DS9 episode, The Muse. Come on down to Garrick's. He can talk you into a new jacket. He can talk you into anything. He's got the latest killer new looks in stock. Captain Sisko sits in his quarters, distracted, chewing something over in his mind, unable to complete the personal log that he's started. It all has to do with something that started a couple of weeks ago. Cut to the ward room. It's become the place where the weekly casualty list is posted. Always a somber and shocking list to read, and this time Dax sees that she has lost a friend, the skipper of the USS Cairo. They can only assume that, like most of the ships lost right now near the Romulan neutral zone, that the Romulans sat by as Jem'Hadar ships crossed their borders and attacked. If only the Romulans could see to join their fight. And that's the moment Benjamin Sisko made up his mind. Act 1. Sisko and Dax have an impromptu roleplay to suss out just what would happen if he tried to convince the Romulans to join their cause and break their non-aggression pact with the Dominion. He can speechify all he wants, but Dax, assuming to know what the Romulans want, demands evidence that the duplicitous Dominion would ever turn on the Romulans once the Federation is subdued. Sisko knows she's right, and this is a matter of finding some deep intelligence, the likes of which could possibly be found on Cardassia Prime. That means recruiting a plain, simple tailor to shed some light on intelligence gathering. Garrick sees this for the suicide mission it is, but Sisko says there may be another way. Call in every last favor, search for anyone who used to be in the Obsidian Order, do anything to gather information. Garrick explains that this would likely be the last time he could do such a thing, and it's likely to be bloody, to which Captain Sisko reminds him of the ever-growing casualty list. There's already blood shed over this. 
and Garrick is in. Cut back to the present day, Sisko is justifying to himself in his personal log that his intentions in the moment with Garrick were good, but that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Act 2. A few days after his initial conversation with Garrick, Sisko is woken up from sleep by a message from Major Kira. The Dominion has invaded Beta Zed. The planet fell to the invading force in less than ten hours, as Starfleet intelligence was woefully unprepared and had assumed inadequate Dominion supply lines would make Beta Zed too far out of reach. Sisko runs back to Garrick. How's it coming with that intelligence operation? Well, he made a few contacts, they were receptive, and they had no love for the Dominion. Unfortunately, they were all killed a day after talking to him. Garrick isn't so ready to give up yet, though. He suggests to Sisko that if they're going to hit roadblocks like this with the Dominion, maybe what they need to do is manufacture evidence to show the Romulans instead. Cut to present day. Sisko is talking to his personal log again, saying maybe he should have ended it right then and there, but he didn't. Back to the conversation with Garrick. He has a contact on Romulus, a person named Vrenak, a senator, vice-chairman of the Tal Shiar, and just happens to be able to bend the ear of Proconsul Nerol. He's very pro-Dominion, so he's the guy they need to convince. The timing is good, too. Vrenak has a meeting coming up with Weyoun, and they might be able to sideline him at DS9. When he gets there, Garrick and Sisko will have a little show for him, a secret hollow recording of the Dominion planning an attack on Romulus. Of course, it's a forgery. But Garrick will get the best guy in the business to work on that, and it'll be on a special Cardassian data rod, a single-use device that will all but ensure its authenticity to Vrenak. Sisko is interested. He has to clear certain things with Starfleet Command, but with Beta Zed having fallen, they will likely be interested. So about that forgery. The person to do it is Grayson Tolar. He's in a Klingon prison awaiting execution, which means Sisko has to call in a favor to Chancellor Galron, which he does meet Grayson Tolar. He's blue, literally, a mysterious alien who is glad to have had his neck saved. Sisko gives him the lowdown. It's all on the lowdown. This is an unofficial project, and Garrick will give Tolar his instructions, which gives Grayson pause. Suddenly, he's not so chatty, and that gives Sisko pause. Shortly after dismissing the blue guy, Sisko gets a call from Odo that he picked up Tolar trying to kill Quark. Act 3. It was all over a woman. Tolar was making inappropriate advances toward Impella. Quark intervened, he got stabbed, and he'll be fine after a visit from Dr. Bashir. Normally, Odo would throw him in the brig and Quark would press charges, but this is a sensitive matter. Sisko convinces, okay, he bribes Quark to look the other way. At least this crisis is averted. It didn't feel right for Sisko, and he was having some serious second thoughts about the whole plan, until a new casualty list showed up. The death toll just reinforced Sisko's determination that he had to do whatever it took to make it stop. Garrick has an update, too. He's got Tolar toiling away, but there's a problem with the Cardassian data rod. The person who has it wants something in exchange. 200 liters of biomimetic gel. 
Cisco is indignant. It's dangerous. It's not for sale. But Garrick presses on. This is their only chance. Otherwise, the operation is over. Cisco relents, but the quantity will be negotiated. The person who can get it is Dr. Bashir, and he's got questions for Cisco. Doesn't matter. Cisco is insistent and wants his gel despite the doctor's protest or threat of writing it up to Starfleet Medical. Time to check in on Toller's work. It's amazing. The hollow recording of Wayun at a room of Cardassians, including Damar, is just what Cisco ordered. They're discussing phase two of the Founder's plan, which would have them taking on the Romulan Empire, and Wayun slaps down any of Damar's protests. The forged meeting is convincing, and just in time because Senator Vrenak is on his way to DS9. Tolar saves the holofile to the data rod, and he expects he's done, but Sisko makes it very clear that he's not. Whether he leaves DS9 as a free man depends entirely on whether Vrenak is fooled by the forgery. Until then, Tolar is confined to quarters. Sisko reflects on the moment. Starfleet Command had given his plan their blessing— but it was all on him. The moment Vrenak arrives in a cloaked ship, of course, Sisko greets him and they share the perfunctory, chilly, and condescending greetings you would expect. Sisko escorts Vrenak to his quarters, and the senator remarks that he looks forward to touring the station since it may not be around much longer. Meanwhile, Garrick has disappeared to sneak aboard the senator's ships in hope of finding any valuable strategic data. Act 4. Sisko and Vrenak get to know each other over some disappointing, replicated Khalifal. Vrenak lays out the reality of the Federation's precarious situation, facing certain defeat against the Dominion. Just as in Sisko's practice round with Dax, all appeals to logic or loyalty or the prospect of peace simply fall flat. But what if the Dominion were planning to attack the Romulans? Again, just like the practice round... Vrenak wants evidence, so Sisko shows him. The hollow recording is intriguing to the senator, but he wants to examine the data rod, which just leaves Sisko with time to wait and hope. When Vrenak next calls for Sisko, he has just three words to share to the captain. It's a fake! Act 5. The plan? A failure. Sisko sits in his quarters, looking back on the moment, realizing that all the lies and compromises amounted to nothing. Vrenak was furious, vowing to expose the lie to the whole quadrant. Something happened, though. On his way home, the senator's shuttle exploded, assumed to be the work of a Dominion saboteur. The Tal Shiar will investigate. Sisko, however, puts two and two together. He storms off to the tailor shop and coldcocks Garrick. He knew. He knew Tolar's forgery would be discovered, so he planted a bomb on board Vrenak's ship. Garrick says he had hoped the plan would work out, but look at it now. The Romulans will find an assassinated senator, a data rod with a Dominion meeting on it, any discrepancies chalked up to the blast. They'll assume the Dominion are lying because it's just what they would have done. Garrick did these things and killed Tolar to hide the tracks because those are precisely the things Sisko would not have done. So he'll get the Romulans into the war. The Alpha Quadrant will be saved. And all it costs was the life of Romulan senator, a criminal, 
and Sisko's self-respect. I call that a bargain, the best I ever had. The Romulans did declare war without missing a beat, a huge victory for the good guys, all because of Sisko's lies. And before he erases his personal log, he says he'd do it all over again, because a guilty conscience is a small price to pay for the safety of the Alpha Quadrant. The End Well, that was a wonderful recap, John. And I think that we just have to, what's that phrase? Tear the Band-Aid off really quickly and jump right into the discussion. So... What do you think? I think you're Should right. Just go for it. <laughs> I, I, I think I think that's that is going to be the nature of this episode. But I do want to leave people with a little bit of a warning ahead of time. Maybe it's maybe it's a good thing or a bad thing because of course Cisco uh, just you know erases everything at the end because he knows that uh, in the 24th century in Star Trek's universe, personal logs can be read by just about anybody, anytime, anywhere. You you right. can just say like. Hey, computer, play uh, play so-and-so's personal logs. Oh, okay. <laughs> we forgot what privacy is. So maybe he's thinking ahead of everybody. You know, something I, I found more interesting the more times I watched this episode was almost in every scene break, he's back to confessing to his personal log and then removing or undoing another piece of his uniform. And it's almost kind of like the physical representation of laying bare his soul bit by bit until you actually see his chest. He literally yeah. bears his chest to the audience at the very end of the episode. I was like incredibly symbolic and very well done and very subtle. Interesting. I, after preparing notes for the show, I read that one of the, I think it was one of the writers or somebody mentioned it in those terms. I love that as a dramatic conceit. What I was thinking of watching it happen is that he's literally taking the pieces of Starfleet off of him. You know, it the, may be one and the same thing. They don't yeah. necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. I think sure. that works both ways. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found another interesting dramatic conceit here for the episode that there is a casualty list. I, I mean, we're looking at it from now in the early 21st century where all information is instant and ubiquitous. So it's a little surprising to see a reveal like that. Like he gets, he gets it every Friday and posts it. And I get it. It is war and there might be some restrictions on the flow of information. But this was, this felt like a very old school way of doing it, which then served the scene very well. It served the dramatic purposes of the scene very well. It just seems like if that future were anything like now, that information is just coming on on every device all the time, no matter what. Oh, it's definitely dramatic, you know, and very much like a World War II way mm -hmm. of, of kind of uh, presenting that drama to the audience. And I also thought that was, um, it, it may have been real because, you know, we know the actors, they shoot, you know, anywhere between 16 to 18 hour days. And I'm sure the shoot was no different. But there was a scene where, where um, Avery and Terry are in their characters talking about how how Cisco is going to try and convince the proconsul of the Romulan Empire to sign on with the Federation. But if you really look at Terry, she has actually um, like exhaustion bags underneath mm -hmm. her eyes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was a conscious choice by the makeup department or actually real exhaustion on Terry Farrell's part, but it, it felt like 
yeah, that seems very real. Like Dax is just flat out tired and exhausted and had very long days and it shows on her face. Yeah, agreed. I thought another good dramatic choice here in the episode was to have the Dominion invade Beta Zed. They're they're likable. They're our friends. They're an advanced and literally empathetic species. So this makes it personal in a way that, say, I, I feel like invading Vulcan or Andor uh, would not have done. You know, it's not to say that the Vulcans would have it coming, but like, you know, we, we look at them, we go, okay, they're super advanced, they're logical, they can put up a fight when they need to. Um, going after Beta Z just felt um, felt like they're they're picking on the little guy. I guess Vulcan will get there a few layers later from here, mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, but you're right. Uh, I think that it's nice that, because Beta Z is, you never really hear anything bad about Beta Z or Beta Zoids, yeah. right? Yeah. So right. we're like, wow, dude, really? You're going to be kicking the puppy? Right. That is Beta Z? Yeah, that's not that's right. Feels, now you're yeah. evil. <laughs> yeah. I love the little, like, the art direction details in this episode. Like, when Grayson Tolar was done forging that, that optolithic rod, mm-hmm. He kind of, he very much gingerly places it into that case, which looks like a basically a modified cigar case. Right. But there's a little Cardassian emblem and some striping on the top. I'm like, of, just in case you needed to know where this came from. Yeah. This has Cardassian, like, you know, uh, logo work emblazoned all over it. I, I love that. And, and right before he does that, at the end of the program, you see kind of this floating panel with that logo and and some mm-hmm. computerese all over it uh that yeah really nice little details there but the you know cardassians they know branding for sure i and look i, I do know that it ruins a lot of the action but uh so many in-person meetings of high-ranking officials i mean vrenak and Wayun, they they didn't think of just making their plans over zoom okay i guess it could get intercepted but um that that's a long way to travel for an in-person meeting and um, I do have to point out, man, that shirt that Quark has, that's, that was pretty impressive. And he had that, mm-hmm. that piece of jewelry to set it off. I mean, they, you can tell the costumers just kind of go nuts when it comes to Quark, and that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. He was upset about it getting uh, cut, though, when he got stabbed and uh, trying to negotiate with Cisco. Can you replicate that stuff? Could, could Cisco just say, okay, I'll get you new clothes and Mappella too? We'll just go to the replicator and ask for the same exact thing. You know? See, I would think that, yeah, you'd like bundle it up, throw it into like this wastebasket, which is essentially dematerialize the fabric, and right. then just rematerialize a completely brand new shirt. Yeah. Here, make I, I, this. I thought that's how it worked. Yeah. But without a cut in it. Yeah. yeah. And and where does Cisco get the gold press latinum to pay him off? Does it like, hello, uh, Starfleet, I need something out of our holdings to pay off a bartender for a bribe. Cool. Cool. Okay. Just take it out of my pay. You don't pay me anything, but just take it out of my pay. There's that question again. Mm-hmm. I have more questions about the financial systems in Deep Space Nine <laughs> than probably anything in the history of Star Trek that yes. I know. Yes. And, and speaking of which, okay, so I love it when Quark just looks at Cisco, just dead in the eyes, and just has that S-eating grin on his yeah. face. And he says, thank you for restoring my faith in the 98th rule of acquisition. Every man has his price. How right you are Quark. Yeah. And the smile, that smile knowing it's like, I got you. I finally, finally got your number. I'm Amazing. Mean, we have several episodes to go, so we have to see, you know, is this a turning point that from now on, anytime, anytime 
Quark runs afoul of Cisco, can it, it, does it not matter to him anymore? Like, look, I I I got you with a bribe. You mm-hmm. no longer have the moral high ground with me. Right. You know exactly. Gotta yep. wonder. Gotta wonder. <laughs> oh my God! So many good Garrick moments in this that that we'll get into. And I just I love that scene of Garrick and Cisco in the turbo lift. <laughs> Garrick says mm. about Tolar, "I've left him with a distinct impression that the door may explode." <laughs> that when Cisco calls him on it, best not to dwell on such minutia. Oh my right? God! Just I know. I, oh, peak Garrick. I love it. Right. Everything yeah. about Garrick in this episode, it's just like okay, we haven't seen him in a while. And he is just killing it. He's slaying every scene. It's every the scene. best possible use of Garrick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also really liked how, and, and we don't see this a lot, but we see it, I think, at just the right moments where, where Bashir kind of finds his backbone against Cisco, And he said, hey, look, I know you're my captain. And I know that I have been less than forthcoming with all of my secrets. However, mm-hmm. this biomimetic gel is dangerous stuff and i am like responsible for it as a professional to starfleet i have to log all this stuff in so if you want it you gotta sign for it in paper like on paper with ink with fingerprints and all that stuff yeah right because you want it you can order me to do it i'm gonna throw up every objection possible because as a genetically enhanced human being i know where this stuff can go yeah right yeah that that was it, it was a very necessary scene, and it it just it yeah it says so much about the position that Cisco has backed himself into. Mm-hmm. Oh man, one of my favorite Cisco smackdowns in this. I will tell Gowron to take his time while he executes you. Oh, <laughs> to Tolar. yeah, he throws down on Tolar really <laughs> he hard. Does he? I mean, come on, like, Tolar was just working hard, you know. But, yeah. <laughs> but then, okay, followed up by Garrick to Tolar. Now, why don't you go back to your quarters? I'll be along shortly to say hello. Right. Such a simple line. Oh. So full of threat and mystery and that that sinister edge. Wow. Wow. You, you take two lines like that, hand it to an actor like Andy Robinson, and just let him go. And I cherished that moment, that that second and a half of dialogue every time I watched the episode. Everything that Andrew Robinson delivers as Garrick is always kind of with a with a just a hint of ambiguity. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. perfect. Exactly. It, it felt like you know one of those scenes in Goodfellas where you know you're expecting somebody's about to get whacked, but they never mm-hmm. say that. It is like, ooh, is it going to happen now? Is it going to happen? Wait, what's happening when when Robert De Niro is telling the wife to walk down to look at the coats, like? Is this a moment? Is this going to be bad? Yeah. Is it going to, you know, like, like you know, so, ah, so good. Yeah. Just such tension in such a tiny moment. Uh, let's talk about effects real quick. I love the shots in the landing bay because we rarely get a good look at that. And with a decloaking Romulan shuttle to boot, that was just cool. I love the yeah. the mechanics of, a, uh, of, a, uh, of an effect shot like that. Love, love, love the scene between Vrenak and Cisco on their not not their very first meeting when he comes off the shuttle but when they're having the drink just Mm -hmm. talking about the reality of the war it is brilliantly acted and honestly could have been lifted out of a number of other wartime situations you know you, you just mentioned it and we've talked many times before about how 
DS9 draws from history a lot, and they seem to draw from World War II specifically a lot, I think just because it's so, well, you know, it, it, it is so prominent in our historical understanding and in our pop culture that, of course, the people who are writing this are going to be steeped in that. Oh, and just a, a great line that honestly should probably be on a T-shirt or a coffee mug. The souffle will either rise or fall. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> it should be on a. It should be on a on a on a cookbook for that matter. You know. I love uh, Avery's um, kind of like his impression of um, yeah of his father. Yeah, of, uh, Joseph. Sorry, the, yeah, of Joseph. Yeah, and. Um, it's just it's perfect it's uh and i th- i also think that he's getting to that point where he's like i need i need some type of anchor to ground my reality right now i yeah. need something to 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 try and steer me back to you know some normal sense of my life and and you know my morals and yeah i, I think that just thinking about his father uh it was a very very poignant moment uh, i wanted to go back to um what you're talking about with Vrenak and Cisco yeah. i mean i love it when star trek returns to these kind of like these two actor plays in a set mm, because yeah. that's exactly what that was. You know, obviously they moved around the set. Yeah. But uh, Stephen McCaddy, he has a great presence to him. I think oh. that they cast the right person as Freenak because he does have this like elitist arrogance to him, but he also has the real, the realism and the pragmatism of somebody who's like, you know what? You better sell me really hard on why I'm going to risk millions of my people to join this war. Cause as of right now, you really don't have anything to offer me yeah. at all. Yeah. And then it's a fake. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. my God. Yes. That the meme of memes. Oh, it, it is the scene that launched a thousand memes. And yeah. it, it's perfection. It is. It, it, it's perfection in its ability to be transmutable to any number of situations. But it also, it, it doesn't feel out of place still watching the episode. It doesn't feel cheesy or forced in the episode. It's just that that is the passion of this guy. This is the situation he's been forced into by Cisco. Right. It's good. It's so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. 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 Um, one thing, though, that was a little wonky for me, because I know that as soon as that happened and as soon as Cisco realized exactly how everything is starting to unfold. Mm-hmm. He's marching his way down to Garrick's off, uh, his tailor shop and he's, you know, storming through the promenade with a full head of steam. Yeah. And the one thing though, theatrically, at least from a fight choreography standpoint is when you're, when you're propelling yourself forward, the last thing that you want to do is do something that is unnatural anatomically and him backhanding Garrick is an unnatural act for somebody who is pushing himself forward. I yeah I I agree that that is a weird looking shot because I mean Garrick is he, he's he's a big guy still and he's yeah. got all that Cardassian stuff on him I mean it just seems like a straight up punch to yeah. get him across the table like your momentum is like a bull charging forward and the last thing you want to do is have the bull kind of like pivot and hit you with his hindquarter yeah That's not yeah yeah how it works it's not how you build up the drama I mean yeah. if Cisco came barreling in with just one huge right cross that would have sent Garrick flying all over the place but a backhand just seemed a little wonky and it kind of took the wind out of the scene for me but that's just you know that's neither here nor yeah. that was just something my observation but it's 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 Garrick's soliloquy here that really kind of sets the tone for what I feel this is in this this episode is all about but the thing is is that when you have somebody like Garrick He's always thinking ahead. Everything yeah. that you discuss with him, 
you can't trust at all. Right. Because the way I took it was every single time that Garrick did something, who was he actually serving? Was he serving the person who needed help? Was he serving himself or was he serving the shadow of the obsidian order? Like where was his master in all of this? And much like we were talking about section 31, Garrick is a professionally trained insurgent. Mm-hmm. Who's to say that what he wasn't doing to actually get the Romulans involved in the war is exactly what, say, the Obsidian Order would want to exact revenge yeah. on the Romulans yeah. for doing what they did to the Obsidian Order, knowing that it's an unwinnable war? Yeah. Why wouldn't Garrick want to have millions upon millions of Romulans get murdered at the hand of an enemy that they only have any, he doesn't even really have any beef with? Right. right. What the, it's, it's, it's the perfect revenge. Yeah. Just a few weeks ago, we were all about a scene where Cisco said it was real. Now let's see what happens when someone tells him it's a fake. We'll get right back to In the Pale Moonlight, but first a word from Upstart.com. One of the things that's even more difficult to erase than a personal log is sometimes personal debt. And when it comes to paying off debt... Sometimes, if you've ever been in that position, it's a real uphill battle or it can feel that way. So with high interest rates resulting in minimum monthly payments, they keep you in an endless cycle of debt, and Upstart can help you get ahead. You know, that's such a good point. Uh, I, I know that I've been there. I know that people that I know have been there, and it feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, and there's not a good way out, and you need that helping hand. You need some guidance, and that's what Upstart.com is all about. It is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, and you do it all online. So it might be credit cards. It could be high-interest debts or uh, funding personal expenses Whatever it is, over a half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple, fixed monthly payment. And unlike other lenders that you might go to, Upstart takes the time to look at more than just your credit score, like your income, your employment history. That means that they can offer smarter rates with trusted partners. All it takes is about five minutes, a five-minute online rate check, and you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 up to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash mission log. That's upstart.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Now remember that loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash mission log, and thank you to Upstart for sponsoring this week's show. Hey, everybody, I'm Tawny Newsom. I know, and I'm Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? Look, and we're back with season two of Star Trek The Pod Directive. We know who we are. If you are new to the show, we are huge Star Trek fans. We're talking to other Star Trek fans about being Star Trek fans. I almost said they were huge Star Trek fans, too. There's varying degrees. Look, everyone's a Star Trek fan here. Nobody's not a Star Trek fan. Different types of fans about, you know, fans of different series collectively. It's, it's a lot of different stuff. 
We have a lot of fun this season. We talked to all kinds of cool people. We talked to Michelle Yeoh, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, Justin Simeon, my buddy Jack Quaid, and more. And more. Subscribe to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's none of our business. Yes, there are several apps. There are so many places you can listen. All that matters is that you listen and that you love us and that you rate and subscribe and, and, and subscribe. You know, Norman, in the last segment, you talked about uh, Avery as Cisco bearing his soul. And that that's funny. That That's, you know, my first note talking about this episode because I love the idea, you know, well, literally and metaphorically here, of the Starfleet captain bearing his soul and facing the internal turmoil about his actions. We don't get a whole lot of that in Star Trek. You know, we pretty much are just waiting for the captain to win the day, to make the smarter maneuver, to cheat death, as it were, and not always have to face those consequences. And it's so interesting to me that you have this, but, you know, 32 years before, more than that, 33 years before you had Pike kicking off Star Trek and that unseen pilot, the cage, run down. And and unable to face that he had been on too many missions where too many lives had been lost. This felt like an interesting parallel to that for me. And it also speaks to a little something that I truly believe. And that, that's that therapy is good for you. Um, even if that therapy is just saying all the things that need to be said into a recorder or writing it down, even if it's not for anyone else but you. Of course, in this situation, there might be legal implications, but... <laughs> At least he hit his tracks, right? You know, I, I find uh, what Cisco did here setting a very interesting precedent for the behavior of captains. Mm-hmm. Captains in Star Trek, at least up until this point for me, have always been kind of like this, the upper echelon of what Starfleet has created in order to help move humanity forward. The the paragon, right, of, of Starfleet morals and meanings and tenets mm-hmm. and their whole doctrine of why the Federation is reaching out into space. So with Cisco here, even though it is therapeutic to do what you said, I agree mm-hmm. with that. Therapy also has to have metrics and milestones in order for you to be able to see, am I, am I receiving something from this therapy that is helping me change a certain course of behavior because that's why I'm here in therapy. Oh, wait, you mean you actually have to learn a lesson? I mean, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that's what it's about. Uh-huh. And and maybe this is, you know, like, I, I know that uh, Counselor Troy's character always gets a little bit of shade thrown at her because, you know, she wasn't full Beta Z. She wasn't really a full counselor to some and a full counselor to others. But I think this is where Cisco really needed a counselor mm-hmm. because yeah. the only counselor that he had was just the ether out there. Yeah. No one was really hearing what he had to say aside from him. And the only reason why he was saying what he was saying was just to piece together, did I really do this? Yeah. And I did. Where are the consequences that are going to change his course of behavior the next time he decides to do this? Yeah. Well, and, and let's face it, you know, he, he had the endorsement of at least somebody at Starfleet, who was his yeah. superior. Um, mm-hmm. So it is fully reasonable that he should be debriefed by them and that a counselor or two, maybe a team of counselors would be uh, on order for him. Yeah. And even if he removed 
all instances from his personal log. You still have Bashir out there mm-hmm. that would question why he wanted the gel. You would still have Quark out there knowing that Cisco sold something out because he bribed Quark to stay quiet. Yeah. And he also has Odo out there. And Odo is the constable of constables. And he sells, if he smells a rat yeah. somewhere... Oda will dig up stones to find that rat. See, this is where I'm really curious, uh, because as we've mentioned on the show before, you know, Norman and I have not watched every episode of DS9 in a studied manner like this. Now, we know the broad strokes. We, we know a lot of the big plot points coming up. But from here on out until we get to the end, I'm going to be looking for any of those little moments that take me back to this huge turning point not just in who Cisco is, but how he allowed himself to be compromised, and then the reactions of other people. That changes the relationship fundamentally. And it might be on something that's relatively inconsequential, like Quark, but it could also be on a much more consequential level with people like Dr. Bashir. So, yeah, I'll be looking for those moments as we we go ahead. Now, I think, you know, here's where we're really going to have to get into the complexity of uh, the character and the decisions that are made and what this means for the episode and for Star Trek overall. And, you know, I keep coming back to this thing that is parallel to the conversation that we were having last week. And I'll draw some comparisons and some contrast to that as we go along with our discussion. But here we have somebody who admits to a series of lies in order to get to this goal, this final goal. He has the help of other people around him and even one or some of his superiors to help him with this lie. But he's fully on board. He's facilitating all of this. And my question is, you know, if we accept this for this one person, that his moral concession is fully justified, because of his deeply held beliefs, which are compacted by his emotional uh, state uh, and his understanding of strategy and where they are with the war. But if we allow and accept this, then how do we tell the difference when someone else, maybe that we agree or disagree with, does the same thing? You know, this is Star Trek. This is our captain. He's, in-universe, the most important figure on that station. For us watching the show, he's the star of the show. He's, we're on his mm-hmm. side. He's a Starfleet captain. He's the protagonist of our show. And we know that he's going to come up against painful, difficult decisions. And we might be able to justify the means because of the ends. But what about next time? What about the other character that maybe we're not so on board with and how do we decide who to excuse and why we get to excuse them because of their deeply held belief or understanding about the situation and the way out of it? And and what about for someone we're slightly less committed to? You know, here we have Cisco cooking up this whole thing with Garrick's help. But what if somebody else came along with this idea? What What if it was... Bashir who came along with this idea. Well, Cisco had no problem at all flat out rejecting Bashir's proposal. And, you know, we understand good reasons why, but not even listening to the details of Bashir's proposal uh, when we were discussing statistical probabilities. 
because he didn't want to hear it, didn't, didn't jibe with him, didn't jibe with his understanding of the job. But now we have Cisco proposing something that is unethical, immoral, illegal, probably in, in many ways. And are we, are we expected to, A, be on his side and accept it, and B, I think more importantly, accept the idea that there isn't a consequence here? And that's what I was going back to with his confession. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Bashir, and I'm also going to double down on that and bring up what happened to Worf at the end of Change of Heart, because Cisco comes down on Worf fairly heavily there as well. Oh, good and one, And all yeah. Worf did in that episode was save his wife. Yeah. See, and oh, he has... Yeah. I, I hate to interrupt, but, you know, yeah, you, you're, you're complicating this argument even more by by revealing how problematic it is when you've got your superior who's now losing the moral authority completely. He's the guy He's who, losing yeah. the moral high ground. Yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah. he dressed down Worf. He rejected Bashir. Like, okay, how much more of that does anybody around him have to take when you could easily, well, of course they can't because it's all hidden, but, but there are people who know, like Garrick. Yeah. So, and also, I can triple down on this. Mm -hmm. If you go all the way back to for the uniform, when Eddington challenges Cisco and saying, you know, you've, you're betraying your uniform right now, that applies to what's happening here in this moment. Now, yeah. Eddington did betray the Federation by joining the Maquis. Cisco knows that. We all accept that. But what Cisco's doing right now is no different than what Eddington did against the Federation. Yeah. He is taking the law into his own hands with really no oversight. And when he chastises somebody like Bashir for bringing, just suggesting the plan of trying to save lives under the white flag of surrender to end the war, that was just a suggestion. Yeah. What Worf did is, is not out of step of what any husband would do to save their wife. And even Cisco went cop to that and admitted that, but still dressed down Worf. When Cisco lies, cheats, accessory to crime and accessory to murder, in this episode, who comes down on him? Nobody. Yeah, right. Because he also had the, the authority of Starfleet Command to do it. So where does this leave the central morality of the captain that we have been used to seeing as a guidepost to what we believe in in Star Trek up until this very episode? Where does that leave us? Uh, yeah, I, without a captain whose moral authority we can trust. <laughs> that's that's the last place you want to be following somebody into battle or looking to them for the right moral decision. It, it's, you know, I, I feel like we sort of gave Cisco a pass at the end of Change of Heart because he followed up dressing down Worf by saying, if it had been Jennifer, I would have done the same thing. But mm -hmm. if you simply change worse decision we're back at the same place where we're what do, does does cisco say to him like I, how dare you you left behind your wife and my best friend and let her die now i'm going to reprimand you for that or you know he's he's literally he's got nowhere to go nowhere we can just point to him and say like yes he he constantly makes the right moral decision yeah yeah you know um one of the things i also have a huge problem with in this episode is the use of personal logs. What do personal logs mean in Star Trek? <laughs> I always thought that they were some type of permanent recording so that they can be used in 
in a variety of different circumstances. They can be used as defense. They can be used as evidence in order to be able to, to, to weigh the, the merits and the, the quality of a Starfleet officer. I mean, even Bashir said that, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, record our conversation in my personal log because you want something that's illegal and I have to give it to you under orders. That's something that's going to be used as evidence later on, Mm -hmm. I would think. Yeah. So if Cisco deleted his log, this personal log about the wrongdoings that he completely admitted to, Mm -hmm. to the ether, not to anybody else, Mm -hmm. what else has he deleted? Yeah, right. Right. This right. is just one circumstance that we see in a, in a slice of time, in a slice of reality that is an episode. Yeah. But if you're setting the precedent of what he has done here, what else has he done now? What you're doing is you're creating a pattern. Yeah. You're creating a pattern for a character that never existed before. And now once you put and plant the seed of doubt in that character, once you tarnish their usually sterling and you know, their, uh, their reputation that is beyond reproach, like Quark said, now... Everything that you do or everything that you may have done in the past is suspect. It, well, it, it's the lack of consequence that's really disturbing. Even Admiral Kirk <laughs> had to go to trial. <laughs> and even if we could say, like, uh, but he's the star of the show, it's not realistic, I will strip him of his title and give him the title he wanted anyway and let him go on, at least he had his moment in court. At least there was a judge and a jury to say, like, okay, you actually have to face up to what you've done. And here my worry is that we we just, well, like you just said, we set a precedent where this can be hidden and erased and nobody ever has to face it, which is unfortunately legally, it's also unfortunate for the character because he could keep doing things that are morally dubious or immoral. I want to ask this, I want to ask this about his actual decisions and his actual motivations here. Would any of us do the same thing as Cisco? Because I, I think realistically, if you come down to this proposal that you're given or that you have halfway hatch, you're faced with the emotional and professional reality of what's happening around you. People are dying. You get the list every Friday. Your friends, your colleagues see that list and they're hurt by it. And you know those people and you know what they've gone through. And there's this shred of a chance in front of you that you might be able to stop it. And this is sort of like the trolley problem again, you know, but but now we're complicating the trolley problem where it's not just you throw the switch and you divert the trolley so it doesn't kill 100 people, it kills one person. Oh, but that person means something to you. So either by action or inaction, I'm getting a different result that may have a different moral or emotional weight to me. So I think we also have to look at Cisco's decision in that context and say, well, there's a part of us that has to understand or at least sympathize with the motivations for doing what he did. I think that part of what's going on here is very realistic, may even be fine, because if you suss it out, you go, oh, yeah, maybe I could live with that. Maybe I could live with the idea that I compromised my my system of morals and values because it saved other people and that's just on me. Except in this case, it is actually on some other people too. Even if we say they're, quote, expendable, like our blue alien friend or our Romulan senator, but it's still blood on his hands. And I, I guess what I'm looking for here is the person or the plan 
that would steer me to do better than what my gut reaction would have me do. And I wonder why Cisco didn't have that because he's, I, I feel like he's going to the wrong guy. He's going to Garrick. First of all, who else has he gone to? And when he eventually does go to Starfleet command, it's just what to get their permission to do something illegal. That, that, that's right. All it is, you know, mm -hmm. I think that the only reason why they threw that line in there is just so that there would be a higher authority of admirals that would be you know, <laughs> approving his decision. Yeah. Because we know, like, our fight in Star Trek, our fight as fans usually was backing the captain because they are going up against an admiral of of questionable morality or questionable choices, mm -hmm. right? You know, your Admiral Nechev, you know, in one circumstance, or... Um, Satie, you know, in the yeah. drum head, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and there was that the, the famous scene between her and uh, Jean-Luc Picard. But that's where we were rooting for the captain. We are behind the captain because the captain is standing the moral ground for us. He is fighting for our the, the, the moral compass for us. So I don't I don't really have a problem with Cisco making these decisions. As you said, would any of us probably would he definitely and it's realistic for him to make those decisions. But where is the oversight on him? Well, we'll see. That, that, that's just it. Yeah. I, I think we make it worse by having this supposed endorsement from Starfleet or somebody at Starfleet for what he's doing. Because then where is his moral guidance? Where it, It's one thing then for him. I think it would be very different if at the end he's still saying, like, I did the wrong thing, but I would do it again. If he had been told from somebody above, you are doing the wrong thing, we can't endorse this. But there's nobody higher than him at DS9, so essentially he could get away with it. So I, I think we're justified in having a bit of sympathy for Cisco's feelings, especially once we know that somebody at Starfleet had approved his plan. All they had to do was to say yay or nay. But then he's the one who has to, you know, in his words, look Senator Vrenak in the eye and lie to him. I think this is the crucial moment uh, since it, it says that with approval, then our attitudes, our understanding of our own morality can just completely shift. You know, I, I think that one of the things I have the hardest problem with in this, the entirety of Deep Space Nine is how much authority Cisco has and why. Because mm. this is a fairly large decision. This is a universe-shifting decision. If the Romulans, if, the, you know, if they didn't enter the war, and if Vrenak said, you know, if he survived and he didn't get bombed in that, in that shuttlecraft, he would have exposed the Federation for being charlatans. Yeah. You know, so, and the rest of the Alpha Quadrant would have turned against the Federation. That would have been 10 times worse, 100 times worse. So exactly... Where does Cisco have the authority, even if it was given to him by Starfleet Command? He's a captain, yeah, right? Yeah, He's the governor of a space station on the far side of the Alpha Quadrant. He's the religious head of the, of, of the faith of the Bajorans. I get that. And he does have a lot of authority. He was head of this you know, military wing detachment under Admiral Ross at Starbase 357. I get that. But you're talking about like command, command level decisions, like the highest level of authority in Starfleet because... They have to, they they have to commit everything yeah. in order for this plan to work. And if it fails, they have to commit everything behind that just to survive everyone turning on them. So why do they leave it up to Captain Cisco? Who is he in the hierarchy of this show and of Starfleet Command that gives him the authority to even 
to even cook up a plan like this. I don't get it. Without consequence. Yeah. By the way, I just want to go back to the thing that you mentioned, because we we kind of lose sight of that in this episode, that he is the, you know, religious, spiritual emissary for the Bajorans to the wormhole aliens that they worship. I I guess the wormhole aliens uh, who do dabble in, uh, you, you know, mortal affairs every now and then, or the Bajoran true believers, they just aren't too concerned about the moral integrity of their spiritual leaders. <laughs> because, you know, the wormhole aliens have stepped in. They have used their powers of deus ex machina, as we know, to change the course of events. And I guess they're okay. And then by proxy, the, the Bajoran believers are okay with their emissary being a guy who would lie and live with that, well, lack of consequence of uh, being the liar uh, to achieve his own end. And we can talk about the, the value and importance of that end, but it does keep speaking to this idea that the ends justify the means. One last thing, though, that I want to cover, John, is that mm-hmm. they made a very specific they made a very specific attempt to address something in the previous episode to this Inquisition, where they introduced Section Thirty One, you know, the the clandestine organization that answers to nobody, not even the head of Starfleet or the head of the Federation, the president. Mm-hmm. Why not use them to do this? Yeah, right, uh, right. I mean, right. this is up yeah. their alley. This is what they do. Yeah. With friends like this, who needs Section 31? Let's find out what Norman and John think. So, computer, begin personal log, and countermand any orders to erase personal log. So we can actually get this on the record. So, John, for the record, we're talking about In the Pale Moonlight... We have reached our conclusions. We have watched this probably many more times than maybe any episode of Deep Space Nine that we have seen thus far. And I'm sure there will still be questions that will arise from our discussion. But now we are here to see, does this episode hold up? And then, you know, examine the morals, meanings, and messages afterwards. So, question number one, does this episode hold up for you? Okay. (laughs) So, uh, you know, like last week... I feel like I could rant all day long about the questionable moral choices made and what this means to Star Trek overall or how dare other writers mess with, you know, quote unquote, Gene's vision, trademark, copyright. I, I you know, that, that's all kind of academic on some level because Gene was and is long gone and the nature of art is that it changes and I don't want writers to feel confined. Last week, it was more a matter of Section 31 retconning all of Star Trek. I'm actually a lot less concerned about that here. We have one person making complicated decisions, and whatever allowance he has from Starfleet seems isolated. And we can deal with that. And and if we wanted to, we can hand wave it away for another story. Norman, you mentioned badmirals, and we can just picture, okay, the, you got some badmirals. Somebody gave a wrong decision, made a wrong call here. Fine, we, we can press forward, right? I, I Production-wise, I love so much in this story. I love the almost film noir feel you get from the way this is directed and produced uh, with that narration and the flashbacks to the action. This is an exceptionally well-made episode 
about difficult gray areas of morality and, and it really challenges the audience to see beyond good guy, bad guy or ask what decisions are right. And I love that this is a show that dares to go there. Now, now I'm going to ask what I did last week. What the hell are we doing? <laughs> I can think of any number of shows that relish in this space, this morally gray space, and do a very good job at it. So what is it then that is supposed to make Star Trek different? Why do people have a love affair with the show for most of their lives? Why do they go to conventions and write fan fiction, wear the costumes, and then wax poetic in interviews about how the show is so unique, so special, and so life-changing when we celebrate an episode where someone completely compromised their values, their morality, and is able to sweep it under the rug? This is one moment in a long franchise and long series of stories. But like last week, I feel like this is one moment that's a turning point. And now we get to see this play out over another 30-ish episodes to see if there really are any consequences or not. We know that one consequence is the Romulans have joined the war. Okay, so that's a good consequence that we wanted. But what about the personal toll? What about the personal values, uh, the personal morality um, and self-respect. I'm really curious to see how this plays out. But back to your original question here, Norman, how is it as an episode? Fantastic. Incredible episode. Incredibly well-written. What is its place? And how does this then shape our view of Star Trek that came before? And Star Trek that will come after it. Um, and if I if I do kind of just elucidate a little bit more on that comparison between what we got last week and now, the troubling thing about Inquisition was it undermines all of the actions of the previous captains, the previous representatives of Starfleet, and their high-minded morality when they get to go across the universe and say, hey, we figured out how to do things better. We're, we're better than ourselves a couple hundred years ago. And there's something very problematic about Section 31 throwing that out the window. Mm-hmm. In this, what we have is, is we've boiled it down to this personal decision and this spiral that Cisco goes down. And what I want to see at the end of it, maybe not at the end of this episode, but as we get toward the end of the series, is... I want to see the personal consequence and the personal realization that you can't compromise your morals like that and still be okay. And that's not the message in this episode, but we'll get to messages in a moment. So Norman, what what about the episode itself? How do you feel about whether or not this holds up? It's funny. I was thinking about what the best example is, a Star Trek example is of how I feel at this very moment. It's like that scene where, where Kirk... Spock, McCoy, and Scotty were talking about Khan, mm. and then Kirk and Scotty and McCoy—they were always—they're—they're they're being like they—they they have a little bit of like a secret admiration for him. And Spock's like, "How can you be this way?" And Kirk <laughs> says something along the lines of, "You know, we can admire him and be against him all at the same time." Yeah, right. And yeah, it is illogical right. to Spock. I understand that, and I find that very similar to how I feel about this episode. I find this episode 
riveting. It's a compelling story. It's frustrating at times, and it's disappointing at times. Mm -hmm. And the more and more and more I watched this for for our review here at Mission Log, I found that the performances by Avery Brooks, Andrew Robinson especially, uh, Stephen McHattie, great guest star, they Mm -hmm. were all remarkable, all above board, fantastic performances. Definitely the performances were the standouts for me, the positive standouts for me, uh, to be uh, to be a little bit more clear about that, the quality of the writing was amazing. The pacing of the story was incredible, and then Avery's performance at the end, the grand soliloquy, mm-hmm. it was just stunning. It was jaw dropping. It was mic dropping. It was incredible. Okay, so those are all remarkable in their own rights, worth discussing, worth mentioning in terms of if this episode withstands the test of time, but these are all production-related items. These are all performance-related items. As an episode that falls in line of what I believe Star Trek stands for, as the franchise up until this point stood for for me, Star Trek was about an optimistic and utopian direction for humanity. So does this episode hold up to that? No. This episode literally espouses the opposite of that. Yeah. And even more so, this episode opens up more questions and a lot more concerns about the Star Trek narrative moving forward from here. But I'll reserve those comments for the next segment. Okay. All right. So let, well, let, let's just dive right in then, because I, I okay. think, you know, with morals, meanings, messages here, what can we take away from this? Well, you know, in the easiest way, Cisco actually lays it right out for us uh, in quoting his father and quoting Joseph, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that that is literally explaining the problem with the ends justifying the means is that, yes, you, you can have the good intention, but you will end up in completely the wrong place. And if this episode tells us from Cisco's point of view that the ends justify the means again, then I have a real problem with that. Now, look, here's what I love about where we go with Cisco, with the character for most of this episode. And that's that as an audience, we feel how anguished he is over the situation. That's a really difficult thing to do with something as high-minded and complex as the story is, but we feel it emotionally. Nothing about this is easy for him. And the deeper the lies get, the more complications get added, the tougher a time it is for him. And then his compromises hurt him more and should hurt all of us looking at the heroic figure going through this. Where I think we have to part ways is that he says he'd do it all over again. Mm -hmm. He didn't learn a lesson. So rather, the ends did justify the means him and that is the wrong lesson to take away from this or from any episode or or any story he says it he says it all blew up in my face the inner doubts and rationalizations all for nothing that is great that is exactly what he should take away except here's the thing it it didn't need to be It, it could have been a better moment for cisco if he had learned something from it And we had just gone from there instead of to sweeping this moment under the rug. So again, I'm I'm very curious to see, is this a turning point? Is this a different Cisco that we get from here until the end of the series? 
I guess I'll have to remain somewhat open-minded to that. But I think if we were to just to look at this as the end of an arc for Cisco, this is not a good message. And this doesn't fall in line. I, again, not that I think that we have to be uh, slavishly reverent to what we call Gene's vision. I don't think that at all. Uh, but I, I think we have to be careful with saying what we think Star Trek is and what Star Trek's values are when you have something that comes along and says, well, under this circumstance, the values can go out the window. Very well put, John. And I'm glad that you brought up the that segment of Cisco's final soliloquy where he said, and if I had to do it all over again, I would. And it's how Cisco says that, how Avery performs that. I'm, I would love to know what conscious choice you made to deliver that because he almost relished the idea of doing it over again. He would say, you know, there was no guilt or remorse in his delivery. He was like, I would. That, that's, like, I, I, and I wonder, like, is that his choice? Is that the director's choice? What are, uh, because you don't feel guilt or remorse in that. You, you don't feel right. the idea that I would hate to do that again. He's almost waiting for it to happen again. Yeah, yeah. There's something disturbing about the delivery in that moment. So in his very own words here, in his very own moment of retrospect, where he could have turned the momentum, this negativity, the other way, he would rather do it again. Instead of realize and come to terms with how much of himself and the principles of Starfleet and the Federation that he has betrayed. He didn't choose to feel remorse or guilt or shame in this moment. He chose that he would do it all over again if he had to. Those were his words, not mine. Yeah. So if, in fact, this episode is, quote, unquote, the episode or one of the favorite episodes for Deep Space Nine fans, and it has been hailed as one of the greatest episodes in the history of Star Trek and if, in fact, this episode has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Cisco has betrayed his oath to achieve the means to an end, a lot of ifs here, and if, in fact, Star Trek overall, or at least was until this moment, this episode, is supposed to be about how humanity continues to find more enlightened ways of achieving a more diplomatic and peaceful coexistence with other species, then are we now forced to accept, based on the algebra of these observations that I've just, all of these different ifs that I've just laid out, are we to believe that now the Federation and Starfleet are no longer governed by the principles upon which they were founded to quote-unquote seek out new life and new civilizations and must now be accepted in this new and more, more overt authoritarian and militarized power? I'd argue that they could at one time return to the tenets of the Starfleet Charter, but even that's been retconned to inhabit the the operation, the clandestine black ops operation of Section 31, another example of how the Federation has given extraordinary powers without oversight for somebody or a group of people to choose the safety of the Federation at their will. Now, all of that being said, after watching this episode, what am I now supposed to expect from Starfleet and Federation characters and the leadership from this series Starfleet and Federation, not necessarily the writers or the producers. Mm -hmm. And moving forward in this episode, in particular, 
this seismic shift that has opened the door for a darker narrative in Star Trek to be told. If so, if this is what my expectations are supposed to hold, then how does Star Trek differentiate itself from any other science fiction series out there if it no longer adheres to the original mission statement of being the series that was built on a more optimistic future where humanity can be? What makes Star Trek unique anymore after this? If this episode is so popular and so supported and so passionately defended in the fandom community, then is this the Star Trek that they truly wanted to see in the first place? Or were they to believe that the direction of the Federation have to uh, evolve into a darker and grittier and more morally questioning and questionable, more time uh, realistic, more real-time interpretation of our humanity and how it has evolved or how it will evolve in the future? Mm -hmm. Perhaps. But again, if this is a true paradigm shift in the history of what I've believed and held near and dear to my heart and soul about Star Trek and follow the pathways of that moral compass the majority of my life, then I personally am not sure what new road lies before me with the rest of Deep Space Nine and Star Trek moving forward. Now, am I what fandom today calls a gatekeeper, quote unquote? I'm soapboxing here. I'm ranting here on a podcast <laughs> as the means to impress upon our listenership what I believe the quote unquote true Star Trek original Roddenberry vision of Star Trek is to me. So... In closing, maybe In the Pale Moonlight is a historic occasion in the overall narrative shift in Star Trek, and perhaps it was and is necessary to show the audience, new and old, that Star Trek must be challenged in order to grow what Star Trek has the potential to become. I can respect why many Deep Space Nine fans, why they hail this as being the best episode of the series. And to that, I can only say... I would be glad to recommend Far Beyond the Stars as my personal pick for the best episode of the series any day of the week, because that is when Deep Space Nine got Star Trek right, and this episode is where they got Star Trek wrong. Mike, drop. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, His Way. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers. Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I hope this doesn't start a trend of everyone telling the computer their deepest, darkest secrets. Unlike Cisco, I don't know if I can live with it. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.